Hi, welcome to podcast number 50, brought to you by Help with Parkinson's, a nonprofit corporation. Our guest today is Dr. Subramanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I'm your host, Warren Budfinick. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sub. Hello. Glad to have you. Me too. So I was looking through the literature and I came across this study that sounded interesting. It says, stopping Parkinson's disease before it starts. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty new, so I figured it may be worth a shot. You want right. to go, go over that with us? Yes, sure. So um, while we still don't understand how Parkinson's occurs, we have had many clues we have learned over the years. And one of the important clues is a protein called alpha-synuclein. Now it turns out that all human beings have this particular protein, and these protein normally exists as a uh, single chain. And what that means is that um, uh, the, the protein does not combine with other molecules uh, to make itself complex. It's very simple, it stays inside the cell and it doesn't do a lot of harm. However, for circumstances where we don't know why this happens, Uh, the protein sometimes undergoes what we call misfolding. And the misfolded protein occurs uh, typically when more than one chain of the protein gets together. And when this happens, we call it oligomers. And when multiple of them, multiple chains of the protein get together and they fold on each other, we call that polymers. And these polymers are um, harmful because they tend to block um, our body's ability to clean things inside the cell, something called a proteasome. And proteasome is sort of like a trash compactor. So whenever some protein or something inside the cell doesn't work, it goes inside the trash compactor. Trash compactor then breaks it down into small little particles that are easy for the cell to recycle or to destroy using specific enzymes. Now, if the protein is a single chain, then the trash compactor works just fine because it doesn't block it. But if um, a lot of these proteins get together and they form these oligomers or or polymers, then the trash compactor gets uh, clogged up. And if the trash compactor is clogged up, the proteasome doesn't work, then obviously other things accumulate inside the cell eventually causing harm to the cells. So toxic waste products inside the cell accumulate and resulting in the cell dying. And one of the hypotheses, one of the ideas is that um, alpha-synuclein protein, because of its misfolding, leads to this problem of clogged up trash compactors inside the cell. The so-called proteasome is no longer working and then there's toxic waste products that accumulates in the cell causing the neurons to die. So um, what these investigators decided to do was to see if you can reduce the amount of alpha-synuclein inside the cell where it seems to be forming these uh, polymers or oligomers um, and making these misfolded palms of these toxins, uh, toxic proteins. So um, the way way they went about doing this is to... um, try making what are called oligonucleotides. So these are 
basically our DNA molecules. So our body has in, in our gen genes, we have what we call DNA. And these DNA are uh, formed by what are called nucleotides. And there are four of them. Um, and they go with the alphabet soup of A, T, G, C, which you probably learned at some point in biology. And uh, this DNA, the A, T, G, C, they form uh, what we call a double helix. Helix means like a little coil on a coil. And um, whenever we have to produce anything in our body, the DNA has to um, become what we call transcribed into RNA. And DNA stands for dinucleonucleic um, acid, uh, dinucleo, um, uh, acid, and then there is RNA, ribonucleic acid. So DNA has to become RNA, and then RNA has to become protein. Um, so the deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, has to become ribonucleic acid, and then the ribonucleic acid has to become protein. And we already said the protein is where the problem is, but we know that the protein has to come from the DNA. So the, the idea they had was that if you can go block the DNA, the DNA that is abnormal, if you can go block it, then um, you would no longer have the problem with the protein and it wouldn't gunk up the trash compactor. So these scientists in Japan, they made um, these oligomers and these are small chains of nucleic acids um, which can go and block the DNA from making the RNA. And this technology uh, is sometimes called single nucleotide RNA, siRNA, or single inhibitor RNA. So the idea is that the DNA can no longer become RNA and it blocks it right there. Now this technology is not entirely new. It's been around for a long time. And what the creative new idea that these um, investigators did was that uh, instead of what we typically do, uh, which is to make the RNA uh, pieces, they decided to make DNA pieces. And uh, this technology that, um, again, is somewhat new, but not entirely 100% new, um, that they adopted for Parkinson's disease, they're called amino-bridged nucleic acid, or AMNA. Um, these are uh, little pieces of DNA that are artificially made that can go and block the DNA inside the cell. So what did they actually do? They decided that first they will make this compound and test it in a test tube, whether it would block the DNA or not, and they were successful at it. Then the next thing they did was to take the same construct, this little DNA construct that they made, um, they attached it to a green fluorescent protein that gives a green color, and then they stuck it inside the brain of a mouse and then asked the question, where exactly did it go? And they found out that it went to a lot of different places, including um, the area that is affected in Parkinson's, which is called the substantia nigra, and they found that it was attaching itself to um, the DNA, which we know causes the alpha-synuclein mutation to occur in some patients. Then they did something else, which is to take a mutant mouse, a mouse which already has too much of the alpha-synuclein. Uh, they took that mouse and they injected into that mouse the same protein. And this time they were able to show that if they gave that um, DNA, oligomer, into the brain, 
directly injected into the brain, it will go and bind to the DNA and block it from doing its job. And then they tested the animal to see whether the animals uh, gotten better in its Parkinson's and they found out that the animal's Parkinson's behavior actually stopped, no longer was having Parkinsonism. Now, of course, all of this has to be taken with a pinch of salt because everything was done in a mouse. And of course, mouse is very different from human, but it's some solid proof of principle that um, you can do this experiment in, in, in a mouse and make the mouse a little bit better. Um, and in fact, you can stop the Parkinson's in these animals, which normally have a progressive deterioration in their abilities to move and their skill to do different things. Like for example, you make the mouse walk on a wire um, and it's like a balance beam for the, for the mouse. And when it develops Parkinson's, it's no longer able to do it. It falls off from the balance beam. Uh, similarly, um, they do something called a pasta gnawing test. So you give a little piece of pasta to the mouse, it can use its forepaws to handle the piece of pasta and, and chew on it. And again, when it becomes Parkinsonian, it no longer is able to do it. It cannot hold the little piece of pasta between its forepaws and eat it. Instead, instead, it keeps it on the floor and gnaws on it from the floor without actually handling it with the forepaw. So these are kinds of tests that they did, and they showed that if you're able to block the Parkinson's um, gene, the so-called alpha-synuclein gene, what we call SCNA gene, in these mice, these mice did not develop uh, Parkinson's. So it's an exciting, interesting um, type of research. And the two take-home points is that blocking the gene in the animal model seem to arrest the progression of disease and um, holding it from uh, actually happening. Um, however, the caveat is, the first caveat is that, of course, it was done in mice. Um, and so translating it to patients is going to take a lot of hoops to jump through. Uh, the FDA is going to ask for a lot of replication of the same data and also testing it in large animal models before it's actually tried on uh, patients, and that's a safety issue. And why is it a safety issue? Because when you put the DNA into the brain, as I mentioned, it went to a lot of different areas of the brain, not just to the area where uh, it's affected in Parkinson's disease. And some of the areas it went to are the area where memory is stored, for example, hippocampus. It was also seen in other parts of the brain called the ventricles and in the cerebellum. Now, we still don't know what alpha-synuclein does in these other areas of the brain. We know that if we completely knock off alpha-synuclein and you have what we call a null mutant where you don't make any alpha-synuclein at all, then the animals die and they die very early. As infants, they die. Sometimes it's the, these babies are aborted. Uh, you have a miscarriage. The, the mouse no longer survives if it has a complete mutation. So it, we know that some amount of alpha-synuclein is necessary and we can't completely knock it off. Uh, too much alpha-synuclein obviously is, is not good. So we need the right amount. So um, the safety issue is that if you're going to do this into the brain and if it knocks off good alpha-synuclein in areas where we actually need it, then that would be bad news. That would be deleterious. So 
we have to do more research. We have to figure out how to deliver it to the right areas where you have too much alpha-synuclein and then be able to down-regulate the, the, the gene and do it safely. Now, granted, the researchers from Osaka were able to show, at least in the mutant mice, that when they injected this oligos into the brain, um, it did not knock down the protein below normal levels. It only went to the areas where there was excess. But they did caution that um, they have to do more research and they have to make sure it's safe. Um, the other take-home point, and it's not a caveat, but actually a good thing, is that uh, this type of technology is already uh, being offered to other diseases. So there is a disease uh, that occurs in children called um, SMA, spinal muscular atrophy. And some of you might have heard in the news that a new form of gene therapy that can be delivered through the spine has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration to treat this condition. It is outrageously expensive, and this has been in the news of late. Um, and of course, um, that's the big problem whenever something new comes, the cost of it is exorbitant. Uh, but it's a lifesaver. So children who get this particular gene therapy by injecting it into the spine have been um, saved from uh, permanent long-term damage that occurs from this disease. So the technology for this is um, happening. So it's predicted that even in Parkinson's disease, this will happen. Uh, whether it'll happen immediately, I, uh, we don't know. But I think it's a very promising and very encouraging type of um, research where they can make these uh, unique amino-bridged nucleic acid uh, modified sense oligonucleotides that can then go bind to um, the DNA that causes alpha-synuclein to be produced. So it's kind of a cool study, and I, I thought it was an interesting paper that we could um, sort of talk about uh, in uh, up-and-coming technology that uh, might be something that we will see uh, clinical trials happening um, in the next few years. That sounds good explanation, Dr. Sue. Yes. So, uh, yes, I thought this was interesting when I saw it. And I think one of the good things about it is almost 100%, maybe 90% or so of the people with Parkinson's are beyond the years of uh, reproducing. So it's gonna have to, not going to have to worry about that whole problem of um, bringing side effects to your next generation, like some, some uh, medicines do. Right. So in this, uh, in this case, that, uh, I, I understand your concern. So whenever you think about gene therapy, that's what people always worry about. Um, will it affect your uh, reproductive organs and whether it will affect your um, sperm or ovum? Because um, the gene has to go into either your sperm or ovum. If you're a man, it goes into the sperm. If you're a woman, it goes into, into the ovum. Um, and then, of course, you can pass it on to your next generation if that happens. Now, that type of gene therapy is usually when you have to inject the virus into the whole body. You inject it into the bloodstream, then it can go everywhere, including to your gonads, uh, either the ova or the testicle, uh, or the ovaries or the testicles, and then um, it affects the what we call germplasm or the germ cells, the cells that produce um, the sperm or the ovum. In this case, what they did um, was that they actually targeted only the brain. They injected the 
uh, this oligos into the brain itself. So the probability of these um, things actually going and affecting your um, germ cells is almost zero or virtually zero. It's not possible. Because these are large molecules, once you put it into the brain, they can't really come out. Uh, they're going to live and die in the brain uh, per se. They don't circulate in the rest of the body. So that's one good thing. The other good thing, as you correctly pointed out, Warren, is that um, most patients are not in the reproductive age, although Parkinson's can occur in younger people, um, and childbearing um, person can develop Parkinson's for sure, although it's quite rare. Uh, less than 20% of, of Parkinson's patients are in the reproductive age. Most people are uh, in the 65 age group. 80% uh, of patients are in the 65 age group. But interesting that you brought this up. Um, this particular mutation, the alpha-synuclein mutation, uh, which was first identified in an Italian family, uh, it's called PARC1 mutation, um, actually occurs at in young age. Um, so these patients typically have disease much earlier than age 65, and some are indeed in the reproductive age group. So the genetic forms of Parkinson's typically affect people who are younger than 40, uh, although there are some exceptions to it. Um, and so um, if this gene therapy actually comes into fruition, um, the people who first probably get tried on are the people who are at the highest risk of developing the disease, uh, like the people who have the alpha-synuclein mutation. Having said that, um, these investigators from Osaka um, show that it doesn't have to be only for those people. It can also benefit people who don't have the genetic forms. But I suspect, based on uh, the data that they presented, they will first target the people who have the mutation and have the genetic form of Parkinson's disease. And once they show success there, then it will get expanded to people who don't have the genetic form of Parkinson's disease. We know in both cases, the alpha-synuclein, the protein that we're talking about, is abnormal, both in the genetic form and the non-genetic form of disease. So um, it has brought up capabilities, so it has some very interesting possibilities there. But your question is quite valid. Yeah, and on the first page of this study, they talk about PARC4 compared to uh, the standard sporadic Parkinson's, the 90%. Mm -hmm. And uh, it talks about duplication or triplication of alpha-synuclein gene for the hereditary case. Mm -hmm. And on the other one, it says more dementia with Lewy bodies. Is, is there a difference in the Parkinson's between the hereditary one and the non-hereditary one? Well, um, this is a topic we should probably spend a lot of time um, talking on a separate day, but uh, I'll try to answer it in a very short form. Um, both the um, sporadic and the familial forms of Parkinson's disease, the genetic form and the non-genetic form, they have a lot of commonalities, but there are also some um, key differences. So if the gene mutation um, is uh, either a duplication or a triplication, meaning there are two copies or three copies, then um, they tend to have a somewhat more serious form of um, Parkinsonism. They develop the disease a little bit earlier, a little stronger case of the disease. They have more symptoms uh, when they're younger, so on and so forth. 
Um, when you have uh, other forms of sporadic mutations, then it's less predictable. Um, but that's sort of a, how should I say, a very simplistic version of it. There's a lot more to it about the genetic forms. They're relatively rare. Um, like I said, typically less than 2 to 3% of Parkinson patients have the uh, pure mutant form of alpha-synuclein. Um, and so the, they are very rare. Uh, there are other forms of the disease. There's another one called DJ1, which is another mutation that people could have. And much more common is a mutation called LARC2, LRRK2, which is a very common mutation. So there are other mutations that also produce Parkinson's. But collectively, if you took all the people who have Parkinson's disease and have genetic forms of it, they only represent a very small percentage, maybe 5% to 6% of the whole population. Um, but we have learned a lot about Parkinson's disease from these um, patients and their families. And we particularly learned a lot about alpha-synuclein misfolding uh, because of this discovery uh, from the Italian family um, a while ago, uh, several years ago. So. Uh, that's sort of a summary of it, but maybe we would do a show on the genetic forms sure. where we can go over the whole detail. Sure. And it's, it almost seems like this therapy is sort of like antibiotic therapy for bacteria, the way it's uh, blocking the uh, RNA to the DNA. Well, there are similarities and there are differences. You know, the antibiotics are targeting um, DNA or proteins that are in the bugs. So in the case of an uh, antibiotic like beta-lactam antibiotic, like a penicillin, it, it works on the bacteria itself. It doesn't do much to the uh, human body cells. Here we are targeting the human body, and that's why we have to be a bit more careful in the sense that we don't want to do um, unintended harm to cells in the body where we don't want it to do anything bad. So when we do the gene therapy, we want it to target it just to the areas where there's too much alpha-synuclein and not go to an area where there's normal amounts of alpha-synuclein and cut it down too much. And that may have unintended bad consequences. Now in the antibiotic situation or antiviral uh, situation, we're targeting foreign agents, so to speak, bacteria, virus, fungus, whatever, that invades our body and we're just attacking them with these agents to eliminate them. But in general, these agents don't have a lot of deleterious effects on our own body, our host body, although there are some, but really the target is the, the DNA and the protein within bacteria. And in the case of viruses, of course, we are looking at um, eliminating the virus genome by attacking that extra piece of gene that gets into our cell. So, yeah, I mean, there are similarities, but they're not exactly the same, obviously. Right, right. And do you think that they're, they're gonna, the FDA would allow volunteers to be at risk if this medicine seems to be something that seems well, a possibility? So, so that's interesting that you brought up. You know, um, there is another gene therapy um, in something called GM1. And that's another piece of news that came out the last two weeks ago. So there's another genetic form of um, Parkinson's disease, uh, which is due to something called GM1 mutation, ganglioside uh, mutation. 
And there is a vaccine for GM1 that has been just recently approved by um, the FDA to go into clinical trials. So, um, and that's been an exciting new development uh, in, the, in this, this idea of uh, treating Parkinson's genetic forms and how we can get over that. Um, so uh, this particular uh, thing came out July 5th, where uh, they approved a uh, research study. The NIH, as well as the um, FDA, came together and they said, uh, we're going to uh, ask for people um, who have this rare genetic form of um, Parkinson's disease to undergo this type of um, treatment. So. Um, it's, it's coming together, and that's an exciting uh, area. So I think if uh, the FDA is uh, going ahead with something like this, um, there's likelihood that the Japanese uh, treatment modality will also um, uh, get into clinical trials uh, sooner than later. Of course, it's all going to be deeply regulated. People are going to really watch out for and make sure that things are going to work out um, just as planned and no bad things come out from the study. Right. And, and I assume it's all the things that don't work out. It takes care of those people from studying, doing a study for something that's not going to work. So you don't have to have it work out all the time for the positive. Sometimes it rules out the negative. Right. Correct. That, that, that's so, that's so, exactly right. So, so every study is important, even the ones right. that don't work out. Of course, um, I think you said it. Um, without human uh, volunteers, people are not coming up for volunteers and, and volunteering for these things and being participating, we wouldn't be making any kind of progress whatsoever. And so it's uh, really important that um, patients uh, are encouraged to participate in research and be, in the, be active, uh, actively involved in the uh, in the discovery uh, process, uh, and so uh, I think it's a it's a very exciting time. Um, uh, so we'll see, you know, how how that all shapes up. Right. Yeah, the reason I brought that up about the the negative studies is they found that a lot of people the negative studies were shelved away in a file cabinet, and only the people only published their positive studies, mm -hmm. and uh, and they they didn't realize that it seemed like there was too many positives, but it's because people just didn't bother showing the negatives. Right, right, right. And this, uh, this brings up a very important topic that you, you just uh, uh, touched upon, that um, we in the scientific field always look forward to very optimistic studies where uh, things look, you know, really great. And we say, okay, we're going to, we want to do this. And, and, then we find out that uh, some of these uh, studies just didn't work. And um, the publicity that you get from negative studies is a lot less than the publicity that you get from positive studies. The one example that comes to my mind is the uh, coenzyme Q10. Uh, several years ago, there was a big uh, brouhaha about coenzyme Q10 being a very important thing for Parkinson's patients to take. And so in the well-meaning group of a number of uh, Parkinson's doctors got together 
and we did a very large study, one of the largest Parkinson study ever, uh, well over 800 patients recruited all over the United States. And we tried coenzyme Q10 versus placebo in good doses, in an adequate number of people uh, for a long, long enough period of time uh, with very good uh, measurements of blood levels and brain measurements and Parkinson's measurements and all those types of things. And very interestingly, um, the study was negative. In fact, um, the NIH, National Institute of Health, uh, stopped the study ahead of time because they found out that the people who were taking the placebo group were doing better than the group that was taking coenzyme Q10. And of course, the study was published and the study was a negative study. But as most of you know, there's still people who are touting coenzyme Q10 as a treatment for Parkinson's disease, which it's not, because there's actually very good proof that it doesn't work. Um, so I think your point is well taken that negative studies typically don't get the same press that we get for positive studies. Right. Good. Do you have anything to add to this? I know you said you're kind of booked no, a little bit later. Is, yeah, I think this is a good summary of um, what this paper is about. It's a short program, that, but we covered it well. Um, I think you brought up a very important uh, subject of the genetic forms of Parkinson's disease. I think we should follow up with a show where we uh, actually go over that in some great detail. Perhaps we can dedicate some time to each of those different mutant forms and dissect them and how they are different from the non-genetic forms of Parkinson's disease. I'm sure the listeners here would be interested to know right. what it is like to have a family full of people with Parkinson's disease and how is that different from people when you know, one member of the family having Parkinson's disease. Right. Good. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Sue. Thank you. You're most welcome. This is Warren Butfinick, your podcast host. I'm also the president of Help with Parkinson's, a 501c3 public charity. We want to let everyone in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area know that we are co-sponsoring a Parkinson's benefit ball July 20th at the Sheridan Harrisburg Hershey on 4650 Lindell Road, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. There's a cocktail hour at 5 p.m., and dinner at 6 p.m. There'll also be a live band. Tickets are $50 a piece, and black tie is optional. There'll be a silent auction, for, and for full information, please contact Sam Yu at 717-265-6379 or email her at parkinsonsfirstpa at gmail.com. I will attach this information to the podcast and also put it on my website, helpwithparkinsons.com. I hope to see you there.